Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Uh, And we are joined today in Washington, D.C. by... Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. And also from the American Enterprise Institute, Norm Ornstein. How are you, Norm? I'm good, David. And we have uh, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you, Ed? Never been better. Wow, that's uh, that's <laughs> strong language. Um, and and I and I want you to know, I, d- I don't sardonic believe it. language. Yeah, yeah well. sardonic. <laughs> that's right. Um, Uh, Ed wrote a piece um, called Will America Tear Itself Apart? The Supreme Court 2020 Elections and a Looming Constitutional Crisis, which ran in the Financial Times weekend section. Um, And I I have to say, you know, Ed's been doing these podcasts for five years, and I feel no obligation to say that any one thing that Ed has done is better than all the other great things that Ed has done. But this is a really, really important piece. And as much as I want everybody to listen to this podcast, I also really want to encourage people to go and download the piece. Uh, I have sent it to people I know in high places because I think it really frames in a, in a remarkably um, uh, thoughtful and clear way uh, some of the really big questions that the United States is going to be confronted with after this election. As big as this election is, there are bigger issues looming on the far side of it. Um, and so I thought we might begin with Ed providing us with a brief synopsis. Norm is mentioned in the piece, so then we'll go to Norm and then we'll get Corey's reaction. We were, I should tell you, going to have Rosa Brooks with us, who is also mentioned in the piece. Um, but Rosa's feeling a little under the weather today, so we hope Rosa feels better soon. Um, and Ed, over to you. Oh, that, thank you, David, those, for those extremely um, kind words about the piece. Um, uh, and very sorry, Rosa can't join us. Um, she, she was um, immensely helpful um, in, in helping me to, to think about the, the, the larger questions about America's constitution. Um, so, you know, this is, a, this is about the problems America faces, even if what happens on November the 3rd goes fine, Biden wins by a clear margin. There are no sort of competing slates of electors from Florida or Pennsylvania. And, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't get involved. Congress doesn't get bogged down in an impasse and and a constitutional crisis doesn't happen. This is about a slow burn um, constitutional crisis. Um, I should mention, as you did, that Norm is also uh, on this issue, as many others, been very, very helpful to me in helping me think this through. And I think that the uh, the sort of basic fact here is that through the judiciary, not just the Supreme Court, um, but through all federal um, judicial appointments, um, through the Electoral College, 
through uh, malapportionment to the Senate and beyond, what we have is a, an increasingly painful veto over change built into the American system. Really what one of the people I spoke to described as uh, an affirmative action program for white Christian rural small town Americans. And I, I think history shows not just with the United States history, um, but really with any, with any country, with any civilization that um, if it can bend, if it can change, if it can renew, then it's strong. If it cannot bend, uh, then it often breaks. And my deep concern, even with a Biden victory, is that because it's so hard to amend this constitution, as you know, it takes you know, three quarters of the states um, and two thirds of each chamber, and the same for a constitutional convention, but that, that's for an amendment. Because it's so hard to amend the constitution, the constitution's not going to be amended. And we're therefore going to see um, a continued effort through the judiciary to suppress votes. Um, we've seen really since 2013, where the Supreme Court effectively gutted the Voting Rights Act. We've seen um, a, a green light to states in the South, but also beyond in other parts of the United States, um, to limit um, uh, the easiness which with, with, uh, with which people can register to vote, to make it harder to vote, in other words. And that um, project has been accelerating. We've seen it. Um, been made harder to have gun control. We've got a, a very real live threat to um, healthcare um, legislation in, in, the, in the form of the challenge to Obamacare. Um, we've of course been given a, 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 a green light for um, unlimited money in politics and beyond, all of which I think is hugely damaging to American democracy, goes against majority public opinion on almost all these issues. And yet we can see no way out of it. Um, and that's what really concerns me. I mentioned Rosa, I did do actually start the piece off with Rosa, where she, she begins every year with her students at Georgetown Law. She asks them a question, what do they, how do they feel about the American constitution? And almost always it's uh, with great pride, it's 233 years old, it's, it's this great document we have. Um, and she said, so how would you feel if I told you that our surgeons were operating off the, the oldest neurological manuals or our, um, our people at sea were using the oldest navigational charts? What is it about age rather than usefulness that, that makes something so great? And I think that's a really, really good question. And I think that, you know, sort of above all, this tendency to sacralize the constitution and uh, sort of sanctify the founding framers um, is a, a, a very sort of inhibiting factor that stops people from debating the utility of the constitution and looking at what might be more useful um, and less of a block to renewal, which is after all the deepest American trait is the ability to renew. And what America venerates is something that is really blocking renewal. And I think that that is what I would call the longer term slow burn constitutional crisis that America faces, ir irrespective of what happens uh, on November the 3rd. So Norm, 
of all the people I know in Washington, you, you have been one of the ones saying this longest, loudest, and clearest. Um, and uh, it's, I, I think, frankly, a few years ago, as you were saying it, people were like, well, that's a very interesting thing, you know, but it seemed remote. And it seems a lot less remote right now. And I'm wondering what your reaction was to Ed's article and to the thesis. Uh, first of all, it's a, it's a remarkable and compelling article. Uh, and the fact that we're here today devoting a segment uh, of your podcast to it really speaks to how powerful it is. And I'd approach it in, in a couple of ways. Uh, the first is we are really now a minoritarian form of government not a majoritarian one. We're not a form of government where you pay very close attention to the desires and, and protections and needs of a minority, um, where you're not just fearful of uh, the tyranny of a majority, to one where we're fearful of the tyranny of a minority. And that's, I think, where we are. And we're there for a couple of reasons. One is the longer term ones that, that Ed has talked about and outlined. And it's in part that we know the Constitution itself was very much a pragmatic document. It was doing what was necessary to get enough of these colonies becoming states to agree to a Constitution. And it meant bending over backwards for states' rights, not just because of the slavery issue, although that was the dominant theme, of course, and that those issues that remain with us to this day, but also other smaller states. And that was at a time though, and that is the Electoral College, it's the Senate, uh, it's also even the, the nature of the House where every state gets at least one House district. Uh, and that means they get even additional power because you can have a small population less considerably than, than what the average is for other House districts. But at that time, the uh, ratio of population between the smallest and largest states was about 12 to one. Now it's 70 to one, and that's created an enormous additional distortion in the process. And one of the figures that I mentioned to Ed that he used in the piece uh, that I use all the time because it's particularly stunning is that uh, by 2040, 70% of Americans will live in 15 states. 50% will live in eight states. Now there are reasons for this, of course, in a global economy, uh, people are going to go to places where they believe jobs are, and they are in the states that have the infrastructure, the education infrastructure, the transportation infrastructure that mean that you can compete, but also where people have the education themselves and the ability to be supple uh, at this time. They're not all uh, red states uh, or blue states, but what we're seeing is, if you think about this in terms of the Electoral College, it means we're having more and more likelihood of elections where the winner of the popular vote loses the presidency and the numbers, the gap can be larger. But more significant for this purpose is, it means that by 2040, 30% of Americans will elect 70 of the 100 senators, if there are 100 senators. And they don't reflect the diversity of the country or the economic dynamism of the country. And it's going to be an increasing crisis of legitimacy. Uh, the second phenomenon is, uh, let me just add one other thing. As I watch the uh, hearings on Amy Coney Barrett, and uh, this will get to the second point I want to make as well, 
we saw Ben Sass and others talk reverently about the consent of the governed, about, you know, it was basically how we have to bend over backwards to give the responsibility for policymaking to the Congress and to the elected branches. But I, you know, winced because it's not the consent of the governed when the governed aren't able to choose their representatives, when uh, a minority chooses those who have that amount of power. But the second feature reflected in that hearing is another element that is more uh, uh, contemporary. And that is the shredding of the fundamental norms of governance that we've seen that I believe, and I've written about a lot, uh, and there are no angels here, but that were really driven by Newt Gingrich and then by Mitch McConnell and others. And one of the dilemmas that we're gonna see as if we, if we get the Biden presidency in a democratic house and Senate is that to change the balance in many ways to right the wrongs that have happened, you probably have to shatter other norms. And that takes us down a difficult path. Now, if you put these longer term challenges to legitimacy, all of which long preceded Donald Trump and which will be there long after, then you throw in the tribal identities that we have now, the nature of modern communications that drives people further apart, that keeps us from having a common set of facts or a system that can even operate the way it was supposed to, where you have debate and deliberation uh, to try and solve problems and the shattering of norms. And uh, even if Biden won and he had a huge majority in the House and Senate, the challenges to governance are just gonna be enormous. And we're gonna see a further division in the country. We have a difficult road ahead and it's gonna be there whatever happens in this election, but it's gonna be there for a sizable period of time. I have to say, um, uh, for us, Norm, you're the fundamental norm of governance. Um, <laughs> norm Eisen would disagree, <laughs> but okay. This is one norm that will not be shattered. Yeah, I, hope, I certainly hope not. Um, uh, Corey, you come from that country that has 70 times more people in it than the, than the smallest of states. Um, and uh, uh, you are a historian, you know, you've studied this and you've studied the things that make America strong. This seems like something that is a real stress at the foundations. What's your reaction? I agree. It's a great stress at the foundations for all of the reasons um, that Ed's article and Norm's scholarship make clear. I think though I am more optimistic than both of them that the system retains the resilience to solve these problems. I'd be very surprised if there's not huge pressure to admit the District of Columbia as a state if you get um, a Biden administration and a Democratic Congress. The fact that the great state of Texas could turn blue this election, that Georgia could turn blue this election, suggests to me that that um, uh, that the system has the capacity to respond to changes to a greater degree than I think Ed's piece at least suggested, um, and. Yes, it's hard to change the Constitution, and no, the Founding Fathers weren't um, uh, flawless, but 
I struggle to think of how you change the electoral college in a way that everybody will agree to unless you admit new states or expand representation in the House of Representatives. And I think both of those things are possible without um, changes to the constitution. So I guess I, I have greater faith in the diabolical creativity of Americans to continuously adapt the system because that's what I observe of us from a historical perspective. Well, I think that you know you framed very well what I sort of wanted to look at as the second round here, which is what I think would be on the minds of uh, you know the average listener, which is you make a good point, so what? You know what is the consequence? You talk in the article about the possibility of the country breaking apart. You talk about you know the the the, the difficulties in. Uh, Pro providing these kind of constitutional fixes that we need. In, in doing the article, Ed, what do you think are the likely outcomes? And, and, and what do you think of Corey's optimism? Um, I, I wouldn't dare contradict Corey's optimism. Um, and, you know, I like the spirit of optimism. Um, pessimism can slide into cynicism, which is de-energizing and can sometimes be self-fulfilling. And so I'm, you know, as a Brit, particularly wary of that, that national character trait. Um, uh, I would say that she is right, that the District of Columbia probably will, um, perhaps in the next uh, Congress, be given statehood. Maybe Puerto Rico, maybe the American Virgin Islands, who knows? Um, I would throw back, though, a question to Corey. It's something else that's quite legal. Um, requires a constitutional amendment, which was it would be expanding the size of the court. How she would react to that, a, but b, um, whether um, Corey, you would think that that would be legitimate um, if this court now being by then being a six-three court um, with very different, um, very different values, dressed up as judicial philosophy, but very different political instincts. To the majority of the country, whether you think um, it would be valid to reset the balance on the Supreme Court by expanding it. Um, I think packing is probably a pejorative word, but let's just say by expanding it quite within constitutional limits, which would be part of the flexibility you've, you've been um, discussing. So I'd just throw that question back to, 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 to Corey. Sure. So I'm obviously not an expert on the Supreme Court. Uh, Neither am I. So, so I will give you one taxpayer's opinion on that subject with no profession of expertise. Um, nine isn't a magic number. And so uh, I don't have a strong opposition to expanding the court. But I would say two things, or maybe just one point made in two direct with two salvos, Ed. Um, President Eisenhower at the end of his terms was asked whether he had any regrets. And he said he had two, Warren and Brennan, because he was shocked they ended up being the Supreme Court justices that they ended up being. 
And I am less uh, inclined than I think you may be to suggest that people's uh, politics of necessity drives their interpretation of the law. And maybe it's more true now than was true in Eisenhower's era because of the politicization of confirmations, um, but maybe not. Uh, uh, um, I'd have to go back and look at the votes for Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan, two of the more recent ones, um, before forming a, a real opinion on the subject. But it seems to me that uh, we at least have the evidence of uh, Justice Gorsuch coming to an astonishing conclusion on tribal rights in the state of Oklahoma. So I'd be pretty slow to assume that people's interpretations of law are a strict derivative of their politics. Uh, Norm, I'd be interested in your, your reaction to this as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're at a, a difficult point. One thing I would say in response to Corey is that it was because of not just uh, Warren uh, and Brennan, uh, but also Souter, that Republicans changed their approach to uh, nomination of justices. Uh, you don't have anybody nominated who was not an appeals court judge with a long record with a clear understanding and a vetting process to make sure that they would not get another suitor or uh, Warren on the court. And what we have, and the Federalist Society obviously is now the, the vetting process, is a pretty clear understanding that maybe you'll find an occasional decision where you get a different interpretation. For Gorsuch, it was uh, an originalist interpretation uh, in one area. But most of these decisions are going to come down in a different way. And what we've seen is uh, up to now on the critical decisions that matter, voting rights, campaign finance, uh, union rights, worker rights, and many others, uh, the five four decisions are predictable. And um, I think we could come at a, to a crossroads here. And it's not just about decisions um, like uh, Roe v. Wade healthcare, I think the healthcare decision is going to be a fairly easy one for them. They're not going to uh, accept this case and throw out the entire Affordable Care Act, but they will put enormous constraints on government. There are two words to keep in mind. Chevron, which is a doctrine over a long period of time that basically, along with some other doctrines, gives a fair amount of leeway to uh, agencies to uh, administer the laws that Congress has passed and they're increasingly moving towards saying, no, it has to be specifically in the law, which would make it almost impossible for the government to do, for example, environmental regulation. And the other is Lochner, which is in the uh, era before the New Deal, uh, basically uh, an interpretation of the Commerce Clause that made it impossible to do anything at the federal level. Uh, and that's been gone, but there are many indications of bringing it back and putting constraints there. So I think we're gonna see some real tension on that front. We've had the court changed in size many times in the past, often for political reasons to uh, change the balance. But this gets to something along with, you know, whether the District of Columbia or Puerto Rico become states that I alluded to earlier, which is, I do believe that Mitch McConnell 
broke some of the fundamental norms of the Senate in filibustering judges, not because of qualifications, but to keep slots open. That was true in appeals courts as well as the Supreme Court. And they used the blue slip in a fashion that had never been used before. It shattered norms again. The way in which they handled uh, the uh, uh, two Supreme Court uh, cases and nominations and vacancies here uh, has really changed the dynamic. And, but yet, uh, you know, in, enlarging the court is going to create a huge controversy. Neither that nor adding states or the other things, including uh, enlarging the size of the house. I was uh, on the, the commission of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, uh, and I wrote a lot of those recommendations. All of those won't happen without altering the rule, the filibuster rule. And again, we're seeing, you know, a challenge to norms. And we can do some of those things. We may see some of them happen in the next year. You can make some very constructive changes without constitutional uh, reforms or uh, amendments required. But they're not going to happen in a bipartisan fashion without adding more to the tensions that we have now and more of this sense that, all right, you've done that, screw you, here's what I'll do the next time. And if you add to that, there's a piece in the New York Times just now about the appeals courts that uh, district courts have generally sided with voting rights during the time of this uh, pandemic, trying to make it easier for people in the midst of this terrible uh, affliction that we have to be able to vote. When they get to the appeals courts, now filled with Trump appointees, they vote for voter suppression on a pretty consistent basis. And if you look, I'll just take one more minute, at this one decision made in the 11th Circuit on the Florida uh, referendum, which was an overwhelmingly to allow felons who completed their sentences to be able to vote. And the legislature stepped in to try and limit it, saying they had to pay all of the fines and fees owed, which is like a poll tax. District court said, you can't do that. And the appeals court, six votes, five Trump uh, appointed judges and one who had uh, come from George W. Bush said not only could you apply this kind of a poll tax, but the state had no obligation to let these people know how much they owed. So if they thought they paid back their debts and voted, but it turned out they owed a dollar, they could be subject to prosecution. Um, well, let's let's pick up and go around with that. We've got a just, just under 10 minutes to go here. Um, and... Uh, you know, Ed, you, you you talk in the article about um, some other things beyond the the Supreme Court, and of course we can return to that. It's clearly on people's minds. I think the issue has been resolved. Essentially, Amy Coney Barrett's going to be confirmed, and she's going to go on to the court, and it's going to be six three until, and if somebody changes that, I would, by the way, and this is. Um, you know, reveals my uh, my biases in this regard. But for anybody who wants to understand how this process has been changed, I strongly encourage you to go listen to um, Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse's um, 10, 15 minute description of of how the process of selecting uh, uh, nominating uh, judges has worked in 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 the recent past. Um, it's 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 very chilling. It was part of the the hearings last week uh, for Amy Coney Barrett, but um, it it does you know it does bring up these two other sort of large questions. Ed, and I, you can address either one, and then I'll go to Corey and Norm. But one is 
secession. Things break apart. Um, you know, California was, I don't know, Corey, what is it? The fifth, sixth, seventh largest economy in the world, something like that. So the fifth. So California's fifth largest economy in the world. It's got, you know, 40 plus million people. It's, it's, it's a country. It's a big country. Um, and, um, uh, and, you know, it, in, in this system, it's got the same representation as Wyoming. Um, and, you know, which has very, very few people indeed. Um, so, you know, how do you resolve that? And, and the other has to do with the Electoral College. And there are some solutions to that. I think there's one afoot where if states adopt um, their own rules, which say not winner take all, but it has to do with proportionality, um, that it would have a, a, a net effect on the way the Electoral College works. What, what do you, you see in both of these cases, Ed, based on what your research was? Well, what, one of the uh, election war games that I did with Rosa's um, group, the Transition Integrity Project, had Biden winning the popular vote overwhelmingly, um, but because of competing slates of electors and all kinds of legal fog, um, you know, Trump essentially creating an impasse in which he, as the president, um, uh, wielded a lot more of the power than than Biden as the person who actually won the popular vote overwhelmingly. And it got into very interesting scenarios which got picked up by the right-wing media, the likes of Michael Anton, and um, turned into, um, Rose's whole exercise got turned into uh, the real-time plot for uh, to a democratic coup. But anyway, in that scenario, which of course it was not, um, in that scenario where Trump is essentially managing to steal the election, um, you get threats of, um, from the West Coast, from Corey's state, of separatism. Now, it didn't happen in that scenario, but Cascadia, you know, the name that some people give to a putative West Coast state, which would include British Columbia, by the way. I'm not sure the Canadians have been consulted about this, um, did come up. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not predicting secession, but if the system is unable to address um, this increasing malapportionment, which gets worse with every cycle, um, then something's got to give. Um, I don't know what that will be. I, I, I don't think we live in a time or this is geographically spread in the way, uh, you know, that you'd have an actual civil war. There is one scenario that um, uh, a professor at the University of Texas um, gave to me, which he called the Ottoman scenario, which is that America basically sort of learns to live with um, a sclerotic system that prevents change. Um, I mean, I think that's the biggest threat is the frog in boiling water that we, and I believe with, you know, the water's actually been heating up for quite a while now that we just acclimatize ourselves to something that isn't really working um, as it should be and um, resign ourselves to the fact that a constitutional convention um, isn't likely to happen, but it ought to. So we've only got about five minutes left. Let me go to Corey and, and, and then I'll go to Norm. Um, the thing that Ed has just described in his article, he talks about it. It sort of makes America the sick man of the West. 
Um, uh, and, you know, you could easily see a circumstance where domestic tensions in the United States weaken us and the inability of our system to adapt to those tensions weaken us and others are more nimble and able to take advantage of global situation as a result. Um, how realistic a possibility do you think that is? Oh, I think it happens regularly in the United States, right? Um, that our domestic failures inhibit our ability to be a worthy example for emulation. Uh, I think in the last three and a half years, President Trump's policies and his behavior have, have done those things uh, to an extent not seen since, oh wow, the McCarthy uh, hearings. Um, but I, I remain much more confident that the system has the resiliency in it. I mean, one possible good outcome of that is that states take more responsibility and the federal government has a less overarching role or that Congress will leave fewer things to the judiciary that are properly legislated rather than uh, litigated. So I, I think the checks and balances in the system, both the federal government versus states and localities and in the checks and balances built into the system are adequate for this. But let me add the most important thing I'm gonna to say today, which is the best um, survey ever taken was taken in the last year of the Mulroney administration in Canada. And at that time, more Canadians believed they had, so the top national security fear of Canadians was exactly what Ed pointed to, which was the country would break up because of the Quebecois crisis and be absorbed as states into the United States. And the same people who thought that was their number one fear the majority of them believed they had seen Elvis alive, by which I mean to say they are perfectly well suited to be loyal Americans. <laughs> so that, of course, uh, raises the fact that QAnon has uh, confidently predicted that John F. Kennedy Jr. is alive and is going to replace uh, Mike Pence. Uh, so maybe they would vote for secession also. Um, I, I guess another point that I would make here is that some of the distemper, some of the tensions, some of these challenges are global ones now. Um, we're seeing a challenge to democracy almost everywhere. We're seeing some of these questions of uh, ethnic divisions and uh, uh, populism emerging, especially right-wing nativist populism everywhere because of the refugees and the uh, other uh, immigration patterns and because of changes uh, in domestic situations. COVID is bringing another set of challenges. Even if we had a government operating on all cylinders, we would have challenges now. But I come down more on the side of Ed, uh, even though I, uh, I'm working night and day to get some of these other changes done and to make sure that we have a legitimate election. Over time, if people come to believe in a Republican form of democracy. And you know, I hear people often just reflexively say, we have a Republic as if votes don't matter. If they come to believe that the fundamental of this system, the vote no longer counts, that if you go out of your way to vote and there are more and more obstacles, and even if you have an expression of a public at large that is rejected in the institutions, 
something the framers would not have wanted to see happen. Then you're gonna question the fundamental legitimacy. Does that mean that states secede? That's a little trickier notion. We might actually see Southern states secede before we see some of the others. Does it mean you might move to break up some of these states? Keep in mind that uh, this has been manipulated through time. One of the reasons we have this imbalance is that uh, back in the 19th century, when there was a Dakota territory, the conservatives made sure that they divided it into a North Dakota and a South Dakota so that they could get four senators instead of two. So we've seen some of this manipulation in the past and we might see it again in a way that could be more appropriate, making more diversity in the Senate by adding uh, some uh, new states or maybe having California be three or four or five. But before we get all of those things happening, it's gonna get worse. It's gonna get worse before it gets better, even if we have an election that doesn't take us deeply into the abyss. Well, I think that's a, a, a an excellent summation. Uh, I I would say, you know, in, in in wrapping up, that it's clear that even in the the the, the eventuality that a Biden wins and has to deal with issues like COVID and the economic crisis immediately, uh, and even though there is a large agenda of other items, from rebuilding American infrastructure to uh, restoring American leadership in the world, uh, that for the first time in, in, in my adult memory, I, I, I expect that over the course of the next several years, these issues will demand attention. And whether it is uh, the issue of malapportionment that Ed has talked about, uh, and Norm has written extensively about, or whether it is the issue of the Supreme Court and the imbalances that have been imposed upon it over the course of the past um, several years, the, the entire judiciary system, uh, or whether it is the problems that clearly exist with this antiquated notion of an electoral college, um, which is related, of course, to the malapportionment, these things are going to need to be addressed, or there is going to be tension. And if there is tension, uh, there could be, you know, untoward consequences. Um, so we will, I imagine, revisit these issues. But the the the, the primer, the place to begin, go to Ed's article. Uh, will America tear itself apart? And and give it a read. Go and read what Norm has written about this. Um, and uh, and and that'll get you up to speed because this is going to be an essential question. For now, that's as much time as we have. I'd like to thank uh, Ed and Corey and Norm for joining us. I'd like to tell Rosa to get better soon. Um, and I would strongly encourage uh, all of you to go to the DSR Network site to find out. We've got some, over the next two weeks in the run-up to the election, we've got a few special episodes and a couple of interactive webinars coming, um, including, I can't help but say, one next Tuesday that Ed's going to host about my new book, um, uh, uh, and I, Corey, Corey is, is mimicking applause here, which is called Traitor, uh, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict uh, Arnold to Donald Trump. And, um, and uh, I, you know, I mean, I only have one podcast, so I have to plug my own book on my own podcast, but go, go next week and, and we'll have a little conversation about that. And the DSRnetwork.com is a place that you can hear more about it. So for now, thank you and uh, stay healthy, everybody.